Welcome to the Man of God Network. The Man of God Network is a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. For more recordings, go to sermonaudio.com and do a search at The Narrated Puritan. Today's biographical sketch is called The Life of Alexander Carson. This short introduction is from a book by George C. Moore, published in 1853. For a more extended biography... I recommend the character of Dr. Alexander Carson, which is online at Sermon Audio by Pastor Robert Briggs, the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sacramento, California, and also on the staff of the Reformed Baptist Seminary. Alexander Carson studied in Glasgow and was ordained a minister in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, but later on became a Baptist His main contribution is Baptism and its Mode and Subjects Considered, Edinburgh, 1831. It's a Baptist classic. His other writings were numerous and treat topics of Bible interpretation, philosophy, and doctrinal and practical theology. His collected works were published in six volumes in Dublin, Ireland, between 1847 and 1864. Alexander Carson, the eldest son of Mr. William Carson, was born in Stewartstown, Tyrone County, north of Ireland, in the year 1776. He died the 24th of August, 1844, at the age of 68. His ancestors were from Scotland. When very young, his pious Presbyterian parents devoted him to the service of God and educated him for the ministry. His mother and grandmother bestowed many prayers and much labor upon him. They could repeat all the psalms from memory, and they early imbued his mind with the doctrines, precepts, and promises of God's word. He always acknowledged his obligations to these mothers in Israel, and often besought pious mothers to be faithful to their offspring. He considered himself, though not a believer in apostolic succession, a real, a legitimate successor of the higher privileged Timothy. When he furnished religious periodicals with anonymous pieces, he often assumed this name. While a student, he was distinguished for his great assiduity. It is said that his father, on one occasion, endeavored through prudential motives to divert his attention for a while from his pursuit of knowledge. But such a digression from the path which led to the temple of science the sanguine aspirant could not willingly brook. He wept and entreated until his grandmother interposed her maternal authority. My son, said the venerable lady to his father, don't interrupt him, boy's studies, for he may yet be a great man in Israel. I believe God has a great work for him to do. When he went to the University of Glasgow, this persevering spirit did not desert him. He often, when preparing to contend for a prize, had one of his fellow students who possessed more leisure to act as his amanuensis, while his emaciated limbs reclined on his couch. Indisposition could not retard his course. His zeal overcame everything, except impossibility. His life was frequently considered almost extinct when the terms closed. But the fostering care bestowed upon him during the vacations and his loved home always recruited him. His fond mother resorted to means for the restoration of his strength, which need not be recorded. So strange and extraordinary did his studious habits appear to many at the university that they often exclaimed, Carson is mad. 
He has always said the Greek roots in those days was laid the foundation of his future imminence, but it was only the foundation. That he was the greatest proficient within the walls of the college rests on the highest authority. The late Robert Haldane, in his letters to the Bishop of Salisbury, when comparing Professor Lee of the renowned University of Cambridge, who was a member of almost all the societies in Europe, with Dr. Carson, as the scholar says, quote, In Dr. Carson's hands, this redoubtable professor has been sufficiently tame. He saw from Dr. Carson's pamphlets with whom he had to deal. After Dr. Carson's able exposure of his incompetency as a translator, there was no bristling up. The professor was made sensible of his inferiority. Nor is this inferiority surprising. The advantages enjoyed by Dr. Carson, who was the first scholar of his time at the University of Glasgow, far exceeded those with which Professor Lee was ever favored. Before he was 22 years old, in 1798, he was ordained a Presbyterian minister, settled as a pastor at Tubbermore, and married to Miss Margaret Ledley, daughter of George Ledley, an affluent and highly respectable gentleman. He preached only once to the church before they presented him with a unanimous call to become their minister. These things are stated to show that his outset in life was easy and prosperous. And before proceeding, it seems desirable to say that his marriage has always appeared to the writer and others not only as singular, but as an extraordinary arrangement of providence. For if ever a minister of the gospel was favored with and help me, Dr. Carson was the man. Had Mrs. Carson been merely a pious Christian and a lovable companion, with all his genius and assiduity, he would never, nay, he could never, have accomplished what he has. In addition to an education befitting the companion of the great scholar, she possessed powers of discrimination far superior not only to the multitude of her own, but even to that of the other sex. And if her judgment did not quadrate with that of her husband, it certainly so far approximated as to enable her to be in the fields of literature an assisting handmaid. It is true that some men affect to despise the opinion or the suggestions of females on philosophical or theological subjects, but Dr. Carson repudiated all such vain mortals. He never belonged to such a tribe. He considered the mind of woman capable of the widest range and of the most enlarged development. He claimed for her a higher sphere, not only in the moral, but in the intellectual world, than mediocrity. The writer well remembers the apparent pleasure and respect with which he often spoke of the talent and the works of Charlotte Elizabeth and of Hannah More. He very frequently made Mrs. Carson the repository of his thoughts, the nucleus of his arguments, and even his technical vocabulary. When his mind was surcharged, he often whispered amidst the shades of midnight, Remember that for me, until morning. It is easy to see that his history cannot be written without incorporating some allusions to the companion of his joys and of his sorrows. For in order that he might be fully devoted to the work of the Lord, she undertook to discharge his most onerous secular duties. She answered nearly all his correspondence. She became the stewardess of his house and the overseer of his farm. She hired, managed, and paid his servants. She received and dispersed his money. 
For the clothes he wore, she honored the merchant's draft, and she paid the tailor's bill. Like the daughters of Milton, she frequently read to him. And when a furious pen deposited its burning thoughts in hieroglyphics, which few mortals could decipher, she became his copyist. How vividly even now are both presented to my mind. There they sit, one on either side of the long-frequented hearth and a time-honored parlor. The great author is, with the speed of light and with the torrent's force, propounding his ideas to the world, while on the other side, in her old armchair, sits his companion, with the gracefulness of a queen and with the gentleness of a seraph, patiently tracing and transcribing the unsightly markings of his wayward pen. How pleasing to the writer, and yet how painful is a reminiscence. After Mrs. Carson's death, he often ascended a hill which overlooked her grave. The writer frequently accompanied him, and on one occasion endeavored to divert his attention by introducing a subject which at another time or another place would have been absorbing. It was an entire failure, for he seemed altogether unconscious of my presence and of my theme. And when I ventured to remonstrate by saying, Doctor, I fear grief will be injurious to your health, he turned his mild eyes upon me and said, Oh, Mr. Moore, if it were only a staff with which a man walked for forty-two years, if it fell into a river, would he not risk almost his life to get it out? And in about six months after, he followed her to glory. And now follows the story of his conversion to Baptist convictions. The doctor, Alexander Carson, and his self-denying band of brethren were with amity prosecuting their pilgrimage when the voice of a Scotchman caused many in the camp to stand still. The late excellent Robert Haldane and his brother, James Haldane, having become Baptists, they sent a Baptist missionary to preach in Ireland. The Scotch Baptists disturbed the equanimity of some of Dr. Carson's Pado-Baptist Congregational Church, they visited their pastor and disclosed not only their convictions, but their determinations. The shepherd was immediately aroused. With eager grasp, he clutched the shepherd's crook, determined to slay the invader. I thought, said he to this writer, a little before his death, that I could demolish the arguments of that Baptist as easily as you could crush a fly. He besought us to serve brethren to be patient, promising that in a few days he would write an article on baptism which would forever silence the Baptists. Accordingly, ever true to his purpose and his promises, he buckled on his rusted armor. Sanguine as to the victory, he seized a sword with which he recently gave battle, fully determined to test his own principles and to expose those of his Baptist opponent. The passages which contain any reference to the ordinance throughout the New Testament were read, the Old Testament was consulted. The Hebrew and the Greek were scrutinized. Authors were ransacked, and afterward he wrote during a whole month, when at length he faltered and finally halted, having discovered, as he thought, that his building rested on a foundation of sand. On one fatal Saturday evening, he cast a manuscript into the fire, and on Sabbath morning, contrary to the wishes of many, and to the expectations of all, he announced himself a convert to the sentiment which he had boldly opposed. Alexander Carson had become a Baptist.
Well, it was considered bad enough to be a Congregationalist, but to be a Baptist? If the former change was accounted folly, the latter, many thought, might well be denominated madness. If thereafter, one of his dearest and nearest relatives, when he spoke of the doctor, always prefixed the epithet, simple, to his name. As an evidence of his calmness and deliberation, I would adduce the fact that instead of publishing his first impressions when his views on baptism were changed, or of repeating the hackneyed arguments of others, he prosecuted his investigations and matured his thoughts between 1807 all the way to 1831, 24 years. The Reverend Archibald Campbell, president of Bethany College, Virginia, has in his obituary of Dr. Carson well remarked that, like Pope, he kept his book ten years, but the fact is that he detained some of his production three times ten. His ideas on the onus probandi, or burden of proof, were familiar to him thirty years before he propounded them to the world in his reply to Archbishop Whateley. The following extract from a letter written by Dr. Carson on the 13th of December, 1833, to James Buchanan, late British consul at New York, will show how little he loved controversy. He says, quote, I have for several years been engaged in controversy, and I am lately attacked in Ireland. The work to which I allude has no claim to my attention from its arguments, but I think it necessary to expose its weakness, and so on. Last May, I published a work on the book of Esther, which has had very great success. It is no controversy in it, and the world is willing to read what I write if I could but abstain from controversy. Indeed, I do not like controversy, although I've been for a quarter of a century unceasingly engaged in it. But in choosing my labor, I do not think myself at liberty to consult my feelings. When Christ says, Occupy until I come, he requires the talents he is given to be employed in the work for which they appear to have been given, end quote. Well, I'll close this short biographical sketch with the chapter on The Prayers of Alexander Carson. All good and great men have been distinguished by their frequent visits to heaven. The patriarchs and the prophets, the apostles, the martyrs, and the reformers were all men of prayer. And from the hour of conversion... So is Dr. Carson. The old tree, I presume, still survives in one of Aaron's green fields, under which the youthful champion poured forth the aspirations of a renewed soul. One of his daughters visited it a few years ago. Who would but repeat the request on behalf of this tree which domestic affection once expressed on the behalf of another? Woodman, spare that tree. Prayer became the habitual exercise of this man of God. In fact, it seemed evident to the writer that almost every breath he breathed was laden with prayer. For in addition to the closet, he often, when in the midst of the family circle, uttered with closed eyes a half-suppressed desire. And when he read or heard of the desolations of Zion, or of the triumphs of sin and of error, he audibly appealed to the throne apparently unconscious of the presence of any other being than that of an omnipresent deity. The writer, for some time, occupied a room contiguous to his chamber, where he often heard him at midnight wrestling in prayer. Oh, the solemnity of that place and of those hours! 
though shrouded by darkness, still everything around appeared as if in the neighborhood of the dazzling, the irritating throne. The petitioner seemed nearer heaven than did Jacob when honored at Bethel by the visiting angels. To awake, as the writer often did, and listen to the fearless soldier and the indefatigable minister pleading with his God and craving more grace from his Lord and Master, was to exclaim with Israel when he awoke, This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Those midnight hours have flown into eternity, and those midnight prayers have been followed by their author into the blissful regions. But never, never shall the impression made on the mind of the listener pass away. No death itself, perhaps, will not be able to obliterate it. It is said that when a member of the Society of Friends saw Washington on his knees amidst the thick shades of the dense forest, away from the noisy campaign, he predicted his final victory. And who that knows the self-denial, the courage, and the singular holiness of Carson— but will ascribe them to the same source. His great genius and exhaustless stores of learning, instead of rendering him humble, useful, and holy, might have constituted him vain and have induced him to sacrifice his conscience so as to secure wealth and popularity. Secondly, the fervency of his prayers. In all his approaches to the throne, he had some definite object in view. And from that object, he seemed determined not to be diverted by any circumstance. He pleaded with God as though he himself was not on heaven's footstool, but as if in the audience chamber on high. It was impossible to listen to his petitions without being persuaded that they were uttered by sincerity. His warm and hearty acknowledgments, his strong and solemn pleadings, together with his humiliating confessions, impersonated both a happy, grateful, pardoned rebel and a condemned culprit pleading for his own life and for that of his compeer. Like Moses, he seemed to speak with God. If fervency can be token sincerity, it was evident that when he drew near to God, his heart was not far from him. Still, there was nothing which approached a boisterous, nor was there any vain repetition or undue familiarity. His words were well-ordered, his attitude was very reverential, and his voice was chastened. Fervency and sincerity were qualities which he respected, even when they were allied to ignorance or superstition, when exemplified in a Romanist or a Hindu. And that which he admired and loved in others, he assiduously cultivated in his communion with God and in his intercourse with man. And this fervency forsook him not even in the hour of death, when in the vestibule of heaven his absorbing anxiety for the kingdom of his Lord caused him to have his hands uplifted while he besought his master to reserve the desired rest and to withhold the promised crown that he might a little longer rally the soldiers of the cross and lead them forth to the high places of the field. During the months which preceded his lamented exit, he often sighed for permission to follow into the spirit land, the partner of his joys and of his sorrows. But unlike an Elijah or a Jonah, when he beheld error abounding, he prayed fervently that he might be continued as a watchman upon Zion's walls and be permitted to battle with Zion's enemies. So in closing this podcast, I just want to mention a book that Alexander Carson had written called Baptism 
its mode and subjects. And so there was quite a polemical back and forth, as you can imagine, on a subject like this. I have in my hands a reply, an answer to the article in the Edinburgh Presbyterian Review on Mr. Carson's refutation of Mr. Ewing and Dr. Wardlaw on baptism, showing the incompetency and ignorance of the reviewer, 1832. And he says, I'm casting my eye over the review of my work on baptism. I was forcibly struck with the similarity between the spirit breathed in it and that of the murderers of Stephen. After hearing from him a long statement of irresistible facts, they were cut to the heart and gnashed on him with their teeth. Just so with my reviewers, they are maddened with vengeance that they cannot refute me, and instead of a rebutment of my arguments, they endeavor to excite personal prejudice. My criticism, they see, is not to be overturned, but instead of submitting to evidence with candor, they use every effort to evade. Instead of manifesting gratitude for my labors and assisting them to understand the commandments of their Lord, Resolved to abide by their old practice, they gnash on me with their teeth. When I saw the number of pages that are occupied with the review, I thought they must have gone into the subject. But after reading it, I cannot see that in a single point they have fairly met me. In only a very few things have they attempted anything like argument. And in this, there is so little even of plausibility that had not the generality of readers more prejudice and penetration I would not have written a syllable in reply. If my criticism was above the reach of these reviewers, they were determined to have revenge. If they cannot deny me learning and ingenuity, they take a high discount on account of my arrogance, my dogmatism, my self-sufficiency, and my contempt for my antagonists. They have kindly endeavored to moderate my pride. I can assure them their attempt has not only failed, but has greatly increased my arrogance. They have poured oil into the flame. If I was confident of success before, I am more so now. A review that breathes such bitterness of spirit and so obviously designs to lower an author, but which has not succeeded in rebutting one of its arguments, nor in finding a single false criticism, is surely greatly calculated to increase his confidence. Such a critique... I esteem a sure test of the perfect sufficiency of my work than the most favorable review from the hand of a friend. I hear appeal to the good sense even of the unlearned readers of the review. What must be the strength of the evidence adduced by me when with all their struggles to evade, with all their eagerness to wound, they are in the end obliged to confess that immersion was the usual mode of administering the ordinance of baptism. So this is a short sketch of the life of Alexander Carson. Thank you for tuning in to the podcast of the Man of God Network, a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. Mm-hmm.